You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hey everybody, tonight we're debating what best explains reality, atheism, or Christianity, and we are starting right now with Michael's opening statement. Thanks so much for being with us, Michael. The floor is all yours. Yeah, uh, thank you, James, for having me, and Stuart for agreeing to participate in this. Uh, really appreciate it. I'm going to share my screen here. Um, I'm an educator, so I had to prepare a PowerPoint. Uh, I apologize in advance, uh, a student that took my class last semester told me that I talk slow and I'm boring. So I apologize for all the jargon I'm going to throw at you, but um, I think some of this is necessary in order for me to clarify my position. Um, can you all see my screen here? Good to go. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. So uh, which explains reality better, uh, atheism or Christianity? Um, I'm going to go ahead and basically concede the debate. <laughs> I don't really think atheism provides much of an explanation of anything, um, whether we're talking about physical reality, spiritual reality. Uh, atheism, if we just stick with the basic definition, is just a denial of a belief in God or uh, the the denial that God exists. Um, in terms of explanatory power, that's about all you get out of it. Um, so I'm going to of course, pivot a little bit, and instead of talking about atheism, uh, I'm going to talk about naturalism. I prefer to label myself as a naturalist over an atheist just because I think it provides uh, a better explanation of what I actually believe, a positive affirmation of what I believe instead of a negative. So naturalism, just to jump straight into it, um, we have a, a couple of important distinctions to make uh, these terms, and this is the jargon I'm going to throw at you. Um, and I'm doing this because naturalism is oftentimes some of this jargon is, is confused with each other. So it's important that we understand what we're talking about. So naturalism, just very simply put, um, is the usage of natural causes to explain the natural world or appeal to natural causes in order to explain the natural world. Now, there's an immediate division in naturalism between what's referred to as methodological naturalism and ontological naturalism. Ontological naturalism is the philosophical claim that the only thing that exists is the natural world, and the only things which can exist are things which can be explained via natural explanations. Uh, that is not the position I'm going to take this evening. Um, I'm going to take a offshoot of methodological naturalism. So methodological naturalism, um, like I said before, 
is an appeal to naturalistic causes slash explanations slash phenomenon in order to explain uh, natural events. This can be further divided into two more positions. I'm sorry, this probably doesn't make any sense, but uh, I'm going to take uh, what's referred to as provisional naturalism. Okay, so let me give you a, a clear definition here. And I'm going to read this so that way I don't foul it all up. But it's, it's got a couple of different names. Some people call it pragmatic naturalism. Uh, I'm going to call it provisional naturalism. Um, it gives empirically grounded commitment to naturalistic causes and explanations, which in principle is revocable by extraordinary empirical evidence. So provisional naturalism doesn't eliminate the existence of the supernatural or the paranormal, whichever word you prefer there. Um, it allows for it, uh, granted that enough evidence can be provided for it. Um, according to this conception, methodological naturalism did not drop from thin air, but is the best methodological guideline that emerged from the history of science. So if you look over the course over the past uh, three to 400 years, methodological naturalism has been the most successful um, method attempt to describe reality and has therefore been adopted by the natural sciences. In particular, the pattern of consistent success of naturalistic explanations. It's, it's been successful in its attempt to describe reality. Appeals to the supernatural have consistently proven to be premature, and science has never made headway by pursuing them. So naturalistic explanations have become, if you look back at the history of science, have been favored over supernatural explanations because of the naturalistic explanatory power. That's not to say that science has never used supernatural explanations. It has. Uh, my background is in the history of science. So there, there are several really prominent examples of this. But that nowadays the preferred method is that of naturalism. There's some big characteristics of provisionary methodological naturalism. I'm, I'm not going to, I can get into these maybe later if we want to. Um, the first, falsification slash skepticism, negation, fallibilism, however you want to put that. Uh, the second, empiricism slash the use of mathematical models uh, as a way to explain slash uh, understand reality. And the third is uh, successful research programs, phenomena technique, the application of technology with theory, um, and the progress of scientific knowledge. Okay, so what, what's the conclusion, connection here? So methodological naturalism has provided, has produced a body of knowledge slash research that does not need to appeal to the supernatural for causal explanations of the phenomenon they study, whatever that might be. And we're talking about the natural sciences here. We're talking about the social sciences. Uh, we can even expand this definition to broadly include things like uh, the study of history, whatever. Uh, if we accept provisionary naturalism, uh, the history of science has shown us that to date, appeals to the supernatural and divine causation have been replaced by naturalistic explanations and that, in fact, these explanations are favorable to supernatural ones. Uh, that leads us with a couple of different conclusions, and maybe we could talk about this a little bit more later. But um, it, I'm, I'm not saying that this 100% eliminates God. 
I think it does leave open the possibility for God. I don't know if it would leave open the possibility for the type of God that Stuart would claim to believe in. We could talk about that later. But uh, one of the conclusions is that uh, God doesn't exist. Now, one of the possible conclusions. Now, all four of these conclusions, I think, are acceptable. But no matter which one you accept, you're still, at the end of the day, left with a sort of methodological naturalism. And in terms of explanations of reality, I think you still, regardless of which four you accept, you'd have to accept that naturalism provides a better explanation, or maybe even that naturalism has produced a bigger body of knowledge, or a more secure body of knowledge, or has been more fruitful in terms of the uh, technologies and research that has come from it. And that's it. Thank you very much for that opening, Michael. We are going to kick it over to Stuart now for his opening as well. Want to let you know, though, folks, if it's your first time here at Modern Day Debate, we are a neutral platform hosting debates on science, religion, and politics. We hope you feel welcome no matter what walk of life you are from. And don't forget to hit that subscribe button. As for example, we have many more juicy debates to come. For example, at the bottom right of your screen, whether or not liberalism requires the domination of Islam is a juicy debate that's going to be at our in-person conference next month. You don't want to miss it, so hit that subscribe button for juicy debates like that one. And thanks so much, Stuart. The floor is all yours for your opening as well. Thank you, James, for another healthy debate. And Michael, great to meet you and to have this first time debate with you. So it's a great question because I like this one more than just, is there a God? Yes or no. I like bringing in, it sounds more like a worldview, even though you did talk about atheism, simply positing either, obviously, some form. It's interesting that you kind of said there's no room for the Christian God, perhaps, but there is potentially room for another type of God. I've never heard an atheist say that to me, at least on this channel. <laughs> I've actually maybe never heard an atheist say that. So what I like about you saying that is, you know, 150 years ago, you could say there was probably way less of a type of cross pressure the philosopher Charles Taylor talks about that when it comes to belief in God. 150 years ago, there was there was no heterogeneity. It, it was homogenous, right? You were either believed there was a God or you didn't. But now there's a lot more spillover. So kind of what you were talking about, where you can hopefully question your own worldview, which is whether it's secularism or humanism or hedonism connected, perhaps materialism, naturalism connected to atheism or Christianity, Judaism, Islam, Buddhism. So any number of things. But I hope, I hope, and I find so many different atheists all the time, whether it's online, whether it's in person, different universities, so many atheists and fundamentalist Christians never doubt their own beliefs or their own, what they think is proof, which most likely is not proof. And that is tremendously frustrating for me. So it's, so it's very incredibly refreshing to hear you say exactly what you said, where you do have conviction, and yet at the same time, you did leave room for doubt. And I think that's what an honest truth seeker is, somebody who leaves room for doubt. So I encourage atheists and theists to do the same kind of thing. Okay, so back to the title of the debate, which I like. What makes sense of reality more? And it was Christianity and atheism rather than theists, you know, some type of theism 
versus atheism. What I'll do is I'll I'll kind of go with theism as well as Christianity. And so don't get the two confused. I obviously believe in the Christian God. So they're one and the same. But for me, it comes down to the reason why reality when it comes to the Christian God and Christianity is it makes way more sense to me than than a type of secularism or just a worldview that is imbibed, infused with atheism is because you can break it down into many different categories. The three I typically like to break them down into. And then I what I do is I give different sub points um, under these points is the emotional, intellectual and cultural side of things. And so if you look at, for example, the emotional, when it comes to meaning, you, know, you go to the early existentialists, nihilists, who talked frequently, you know, whether it's Camus, Sartre, so many, Nietzsche, they would make statements like, if there is no God, then the only question that modern man has to ask himself is why not kill himself? And if you draw that really out, then you could say, yeah, there, there's a point to that in terms of there, there really isn't any objective meaning. And all that we do here on this planet is ultimately going to be for naught. That's why you have a guy like Leo Tolstoy, who, when he was at the very apex of his career, considered the most gifted author in the world at that point, Russian. He completely had an emotional breakdown because he started to realize, wow, my life has no meaning despite all this success and worldly fame. And it's up for debate whether he became a Christian. I know Dostoevsky did. Not sure, not sure about Tolstoy, potentially. Either way, though, that is, if there is no God, total breakdown of meaning. Yes, you can still make up your own meaning. Like, you know, I, I'm going to find my meaning in being an altruist, or I'm going to find my meaning in being like a good dad. So I think in terms of it being durable, in terms of it not crushing you, in terms of it being consistent with there's not just going to be a heat death of this place and all that we've ever accomplished is just going to go up in, in smokes. You know, it's, it's like when Steve Jobs talked about how even though he was an atheist, we're not sure how he died, what his worldview was. But he's, some of his last words, his, his last, last words were, wow, 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 which, which he was communicating supposedly just this total shock and, and just misunderstanding of what life really was. But before he said that, he talked about it's so hard to think that all meaning and purpose to all my relationships, but especially my work and all the experience I accumulated is just going to go away with the click of a mouse. And in reference to obviously click of his life. So you can see this played out. And I think so many people who don't believe in God and don't believe in, in some type of eternity really try and deny and entertain themselves to death, like Neil Postman talked about, in order to not, not have to deal with the meaning question. As opposed to if there's a God, then you truly do, your, all your work has meaning in it. And it will be fulfilled whatever work is actually spoiled leaf by niggle is is a great great short story by c.s lewis that talks about this type of frustration here on earth where we can't finish things and uh, there's unfinished relationships and everything in us wants to finish things and that's what heaven's ultimately going to be we're going to be bought back there's going to be perfect relationships like jonathan edwards talked about it's like a clogged pipe here on earth that that pipe will officially be unclogged in heaven Relationships will be perfect. Everything about, I mean, even Judgment Day. Think about it. Those who are abused sexually, you know, the sex slave trade is huge right now. Unfortunately, a lot of people are fighting it. But think about all those abused. I've been to safe homes in Costa Rica and elsewhere. 
Think about all those people who have been physically abused, all those little girls over and over and over again. Think about how many of their perpetrators are just going to get away with it. If there is no judgment day, no heaven, no God, they're going to get away with it. And, and just tough, tough luck. And I've talked to some of the top atheists, and they've and, and they've they stutter over that one. They're like, I know it stinks, and and they just they stop. There there is no answer for it because they don't want to just say, yep, that's how reality is, even though they know that. All right, then next would be identity. I find so many people in my area who go into New York City. There's millionaires. There's some billionaires around here, and they're living for wealth. And typically, most of them are crushing their families. And there's a type of child sacrifice that goes on, which is I never see my kids. My kids barely even know who I am. And identity, of, and I'm not saying that they can't be Christian as well, but typically, when you don't have God as your very identity, then you have this still have this God-shaped hole, and you're going to fill it with something. And if, say, if it is your kids, well, then all of a sudden you're putting so much crushing weight on your kids to get into, a, say, a certain school or something that you're going to just destroy them. Or say it is wealth and money. Well, all of a sudden, that's how they're going to leave you tremendously lonely or later on turn. Oftentimes what I see is tremendously wealthy people will, will lose a good amount and they'll turn to alcoholism or something worse like opioids. And so every single good psychologist will talk about a God-shaped hole. And what are you going to fill it with? Well, I think God makes the most sense in terms of if you want to have a healthy identity. And then freedom. You know, secularism eats up committed love relationships. It's like, but what do you mean by that? And I'm, I'm just saying, again, I don't, you talked about naturalism. I would say secularism is connected to atheism, but maybe you wouldn't call yourself a secularist. But I, I would still say in our culture today, which is called secular by many, despite the spread of Christianity, I would still say that there's negative and positive freedom, philosopher talked about. And negative freedom is, I don't want any type of restrictions. And that's why atheists on average now are having 1.4, I believe, kids. And that's why the there is such a staggering increase in divorce, because negative freedom is, I, I want my options always open. Versus if there is a God, and specifically the Christian God, all of that is about covenant and commitment that God made to us in Genesis through the Old Testament through the New Testament in a different kind of way. And you're supposed to remain committed to God because God is always committed to you. You're supposed to disadvantage yourself for your spouse. And you're supposed to always be trying to make your spouse better and then always remain committed to your spouse. And then obviously in Genesis, there's be fruitful, multiply. It's not saying you're a sinner if you don't have kids, but it is the encouragement to have kids. So the individualistic view um, is connected to atheism typically. And the individualistic view is eating up our country in, in a pretty bad way. And I don't think it I don't think it jives with what we experience as reality, what we want all want reality to be. Then there's the intellectual side. You know, there's something rather than nothing. That's that's an issue for an atheist to deal with um, or moral obligation. You know, it, I love how Arthur left this this great writer talked about how if there's you know no divine law, if there's no God behind law, then there's no way to differentiate on how to make laws. It would just be your opinion versus my opinion. And we just shout at each other. And you could take the Nuremberg trials as a perfect case in point of that <clears throat> before Justice Davis talked about, no, there is a God above culture. So the Nazi generals are going to prison or going to be executed, even though they said they were just following orders from the higher ups, ultimately from Hitler. And then there's the cultural. Okay, what, what, where's the case for justice? And we talk about justice all the time these days. Where's the case for forgiveness? Because I see 
in so many different movements today. It's all about justice, 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 but cancel culture. Let's go ahead. You know, that person messed up. Let's not forgive him. Christianity is all about justice and forgiveness and, and grace. And so many times, many examples, the Amish do it best. The black church does it best. I would say the Amish and the black church probably are the best examples, especially in the last few hundred years, of how to show grace when you are treated tremendously in a tremendously unjust kind of way. And so you need those two. I think every human heart, every human, if they're honest with themselves, wants both of those. They want justice. They want the perpetrator to ultimately be dealt with. But at the same time, they want to be forgiven when they mess up. And then the Christian story explains the trash and future glory redemption that we all have. I think we all want this too. I think all the vast majority of movies and stories point to trash, some type of big mess up and brokenness, and then a savior, some type of messianic figure, and then a future glory. And I believe just about all of those are obviously myths and fiction pointing to the greatest myth that is reality, which is Christ. And so I think that explains reality the most. Does that prove there is a God or anything like that? No. no, no. 30 seconds left. Yeah. And then finally, finally, I still think that every single claim is, is an exclusive claim that anybody makes, even if it's they're all gods are the same. The question is, what is going to be the most exclusive, inclusive claim that is going to be the reality that, that really works as a worldview? And I believe that's Christianity. You got it. And want to say thanks so much, Stuart, for that opening. And reminder, folks, that our guests are linked in the description, as well as my dear friends, if you didn't know, Modern Day Debate is having our first ever conference January 15th and 16th in Dallas, Texas. You don't want to miss it, folks. I am putting the link for the in-person tickets in the live chat right now. I've already put it in the description box and we're extending the early bird pricing for the tickets. As I, I reached out to Bob today, I said, let's just extend it because we do really want you to be able to get these early bird tickets because we're actually gonna ask the speakers to promote this on their channel as well. And at that point, we're not gonna have the early bird pricing. And so we do wanna say, hey, jump in on it right now. That way you can get that early bird pricing as it is a great deal right now. It is a stacked conversation Conference. But with that, we're going to jump into the open conversation. Thanks so much, gentlemen. The floor is all yours for that open dialogue. All right. You mind if I start us off with a quick clarification, Stuart? Absolutely. Okay. Uh, so I was just going to clarify. Um, I didn't mean to suggest that I didn't think there was room for the Christian God specifically. Um, I just didn't want to assume any uh, theological beliefs that you might have. So I don't. I don't know what uh, branch of Christianity you come from. So um, I would just say that it uh, naturalism limits uh, God's interaction with the world in certain ways. And I didn't know where you fall on that spectrum, so I didn't want to make assumptions there. No, definitely. So the philosophy of naturalism, which you were right to say, certainly assumes that there is no God. And, you know, macroevolution, all those fall under underneath it. And it was so that's why I love though that you, it was interesting that you talked about the possibility for a God within you didn't call it the philosophy of naturalism, but you just talked about naturalism. You would you would do a better job splicing the two for me. But no, I, I, I thanks for thanks for clarifying that. I saw on your board, which I liked, you talked about I, I saw it there somewhere. New creationism, young earth. I am not a young earther. So <laughs> fair <laughs> enough. Yeah. Earth is six thousand years old. So maybe you were heading in that direction. I don't know. 
No, no, no. Um, It's um, and I don't again, I'm not trying to get super technical, but I think it depends upon you would depend upon your view of uh, divine intervention and the ways in which you believe that God does or does not interact with the physical universe, whether or not the sort of naturalism that I'm advocating for would limit the role slash action of God. I mean, you you could get you get people who take the position um and i could get a little bit into this if you want me to divide it up but um some people would say well you know god's uh god's actions are synonymous with natural law in which case my understanding of naturalism does not say anything or disprove anything about that it is what it is i you know um that would be i, I think a little bit more pantheistic and i don't you know christians can be pantheists we don't have to go there, but, um, or you could say that, you know, God's actions are just completely, uh, ineffable. They're beyond human understanding. Again, in which case my understanding of naturalism would have nothing to say about that sort of God. So just as a clarification. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Totally random question. It was connected with one of the points I made. Do you think racism is wrong? <laughs> yes. Why would you say, Michael, from your might have a connection issue? If it's probably not just me, uh, Stuart might have froze, so might have to yeah, give him. I can't hear. You're saying you can't hear me? No, I, I can't hear Stuart. Oh, okay. Uh, I think if you're able to go back just about 20 seconds, Stuart, we missed you for the last uh, maybe uh, maybe more like 10 seconds. Unfortunately, I stopped talking there, James. I, oh, okay. I, I so I went silent. But I was I was just saying that. Um, gosh, now I can't I, I can't remember where I was. It was like my internet went off, my brain went off. Uh, what was my point? It was on racism. But I, I think I had just asked you, oh, yeah, yeah, in terms of, as a naturalist, why do you, th- especially with science, you know, just 100 years ago, we were doing, whether it was tests on different races, I mean, I mean, we don't even have to get into euthanasia and different forms of abortion, but how about just the scientific tests on different races that were going on just 100 years ago, especially as a naturalist? How do you go about say saying you know I am I am definitely against racism in a very serious way. I believe equality for all. How does that make most sense of reality from that perspective than say the Christian worldview? Um, yeah, that's a good question. So, um, science has a lot of skeletons in its closet for sure. I, I absolutely love the history of science. So, to uh, bolster what you're saying there. I mean, you have uh, the neo-Darwinians of the late 19th century who believed that uh, Darwin's idea of natural selection led to kind of a hierarchical view of humanity. Of course, the people who were arguing that were European scientists, and of course, they said that the Europeans were the top of the hierarchy. Uh, you You have a whole laundry list in the 20th century of highly, highly unethical experiments that were carried out on minority groups. Uh, The Tuskegee experiment comes to mind. Um, Yeah, yeah, so I I get that. Um, Stuart, I would... So I don't think that... I don't think that science is the only 
is the only body of knowledge that describes reality. Uh, so I'm a philosophy teacher and on a regular basis I teach ethics. Um, ethics is a description of a certain part of reality and that's the part of reality that we all share together and it asks questions about how we're supposed to live and interact with each other. Um, and there are multiple, um, give a quick distinction, you have uh, what's called meta-ethical theories, which are these big uh, grand theories of ethics, such as deontology, utilitarianism, virtue ethics, uh, rights-based ethics, uh, there's a whole lot of them. Uh, Ayn Rand's objectivist ethics, uh, none of which rely upon appeals to divine authority. So that's how I would address uh, issues of systematic racism. I think you have to, uh, it does depend on your understanding of ethics. I think it also depends on your understanding of politics, economics, uh, even down to like city planning, all that, all that good stuff. So it's, uh, it's a very, I'd have to give a very complicated nuance answer that involved other bodies of knowledge. But even in uh, even in ethics, going back to ethics, and even in these big meta-ethical theories, uh, these theories don't assume naturalism because philosophy doesn't argue in the same way that science argues. But regardless, there is a sort of pseudo-naturalistic methodology in the sense that to support your philosophical argument, you're appealing to commonly shared evidence and not to a divine being to justify your claims. See, I would agree with all of that because I think there's ethical systems out there that certainly absolutely eradicate any understanding of God and, and do just fine. But I would, I would still say that the intellectual resource underneath them is typically just not even present. Because I would say I'm not a racist because I'm a Christian. If I wasn't a Christian, I would say I'd have a tough time pulling up intellectual resources that are clear to explain why I wouldn't be a racist. I'm, I, I think, I, I think, I certainly would hope I would still not be a racist, even if I wasn't a Christian. You know, all of, at least all I can think of my non-Christian friends are definitely not racist. So it's not, you know, when Dostoevsky talks about, you know, you remove God and man can do whatever he wants, Obviously, Dostoevsky was not saying that non-Christians are somehow just going to live way more debauched lifestyles than Christians are. He was more so getting at the, the intellectual resources underneath these claims that people were making. And so for me, if I, if I don't have Christianity, then my tribe has more power than others. And I'm going to cling to my tribe because I need power. I, I don't just want power, but I need it to survive and I need it for my kids to do better. And so why would I fight against something like racism? And why would not occasionally would I live in a racist sort of way in order just to just to better myself? That would just make sense at times. And then, you know, we because another way we see it today is conversations so quickly go into outrage over things like racism. Um, and that's because there's no grounding. There's really no grounding for why racism is wrong. Instead, it's just ethical systems, like you said. And you know, if you challenge that in any kind of way, all I can do is shout at you because I don't have any grounding or intellectual resource to really, to really challenge you. But I can shout at you and just tell you you're wrong. And everybody knows that you're wrong. Come on, come on, Michael. Everybody knows, I mean, we're, we're in the great US of A. 
hello, everybody knows racism is wrong. We don't really know why it's wrong, but we know racism is wrong. And so it's it's just that quick movement towards outrage, and, and it's around things like racism, it's around things like sexuality. And, and I think it's, again, if there's, if we don't want, if we want this kingdom that we live in without a king, you're going to have problems like this. I mean, it's, it's kind of like a playground without a teacher. You know, whoever rules in the playground is going to be the loudest, the strongest, like ultimately just the bully. And that's who's going to win out. That's who's going to define things. That's who's going to try and make sense of things, struggle doing it. So, so what we see is, you know, the victim should be protected, but now it seems like there's this race to the bottom to see who is the victim. It's like this heroic narrative of, I want to be a, an oppressed person, whatever the cost, because I want an identity that is secure. And I find that in this tribe, even if it is an oppressed people group. So I, I think for me, if you were to push me though and say, oh, okay, fine, well, why is, why is racism wrong then? Why, why, why do you think your Christianity is the reason why you're not an atheist? I would say it goes firstly back to Genesis chapter one. Every single human being is created in the image of God. And if God created the entire cosmos, certainly all human beings, and we're created in his, in his image, we have no right to ever treat another race as somehow less than ours. And it's not all just about power plays and whoever's on top. Now, have Christians absolutely made huge mistakes? Like you talked about the skeletons in the science closet. There's absolutely tons of skeletons in Christianity's closet. And I mean, every single major civilization has had slavery, right? Since the beginning of time. But Christianity in particular, it's, it's been that. The issue is absolutely there. But again, you look at the very center of it. In many ways, Jesus was a slave. He was absolutely a servant of all, but many would even call him a slave. You know, servant, doulos, and slave are actually, if you go back to the Hebrew, they're very similar in definition. And he always talked about whether it was Paul talking about Philemon and Onesimus, his runaway slave, allow him to go free, accept him back as a brother. Even in the, during the Civil War, the Civil War is a theological crisis by, by Mark Knoll. He talks about how it wasn't people sitting down with their Bibles and like praying and meditating over scripture and saying, ah, no, see in the Old Testament, it's clear. There are, Ishmael was clearly somebody who was black and we need to rule over the black people. No, it was always over power plays. It was always over money, you know, nationalism of sorts. And so scripture, if you get into it, if you see that everything is about actually uplifting the other, if it's about dying for your enemy, even when they're crucifying you, that gives you a resource to actually go about treating everybody equally. Yeah. Um, I mean, so I, I, I see where you're coming from there. Um, I mean, I think Christian ethics, uh, I, I get the logic there, but um, I don't really, so you said that you don't think that it, uh, these other ethical systems don't have, uh, I can't remember the phrase that you use. They don't have uh, something undergirding them. Intellectual, like a good intellectual resource underneath them. Uh, yeah. Like premise and conclusion. Okay. So, um, I mean, so racism would be a good example. I mean, I think that through, uh, if I was going to talk about institutionalized racism in the United States, for example, I can make a good historical 
case for the origins of racism going back to American slavery, uh, how American slavery was racialized, how American slavery, the legal process that went into subjugating an entire group of people. And I could show how those legal processes were harmful to African Americans historically by appealing to common evidence like the laws that were passed. You could talk about the uh, rates of poverty that haunted these groups long after slavery was abolished. Uh, I mean, there's all sorts of evidence that I, I think I could point to and say, yeah, I mean, regardless of your ethical system, uh, this is bad. Mm-hmm. But why is it bad? Um, well, I mean, there's a whole bunch of different standards we can measure the badness by. We could talk about uh, the economic impact on the group of people, how it negatively affected them. Uh, we could talk about the social impact, how it socially isolated them, made them feel like a people set apart. Uh, we could talk about, um, I mean, if you, we could even talk about the spiritual impact that it had upon them as uh, psychologically speaking, as a marginalized group. I mean, I think there's a couple of different angles you could go to to to, to demonstrate that. But if we were to serve them, we'd be, you know, we were here first, whoever the we I might be referring to. And if we were to serve them just for the sake of, we feel like it's harmful to be racist. Okay. There, there's a couple problems with that. One, first of all, just why do that? I mean, we were here first. We, we need to serve our own. Two, what is harm and why would that ultimately matter? I mean, we harm people in different ways, whether it's, say, through pornography, because we know pornography is directly connected to the sex trade. We know many of those who are in the porn industry themselves are being abused. We know via Billie Eilish recently that mental health is, is horribly connected and tied to pornography. So. So there's harm in, in all sorts of things, and yet we consider pornography as, 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 not, as not bad. And so I, I think with racism, it's sort of like, again, there, there is no grounding from the atheistic position for, for why it's that bad, especially if you look at naturalism and how you know, we grew up strong eating the weak. How are you all of a sudden jumping, taking this big leap to, hey, you know, now we should watch out actually for this other people group. I could even go to the extent of saying that's being selfish of an atheist because you're actually depleting your own resources and not looking after your own. Rather, you're somehow just looking out for, for a race that's other than you who, who isn't even connected to your tribe. Yeah, I'm not. Um, I don't think naturalism has anything to say about ethics. And um I don't know if I could really defend the position that people like uh, Sam Harris would take that would say that uh, ethical principles are derivable from scientific laws. I don't, I personally don't get that connection. Um, for me, I would talk about uh, ethics within the context of um, society, uh, the kind of social contract theory. Um, the sort of rules and regulations that we need and all that we all need in order to exist peacefully with each other. And again, the, the basis for that evidence, I think, would be uh, there's a lot of different 
appeals that you can make. Uh, again, you could talk about it in terms of economics, in terms of the ways in which certain political policies have affected certain people. You could talk about it, the, the, the no harm principle of utilitarianism, whether or not these policies are harmful, physically harmful, emotionally harmful to people. I, I just don't see the need to, to further underlie that with some other sort of support. And the philosophy conferences that I've been to, and if you pick up an introduction to ethics, I mean, it's going to talk about divine command theory, yes, because historically that's been a prominent ethical theory, but these big meta-ethical theories don't need divine command theory or don't appeal to it in their explanations. Sure, but so you would, you're going to, did you used to be a Christian? Uh, I did, yeah. So did you get an idea that the oppressed were supposed to be looked after? I mean, the original humanist, humanistic atheists, obviously they weren't atheists, but humanism has been stolen by atheists and secularists as their own. But the original humanists were Christians, just like the original progressives were Christians, because pro progressivism meant you're progressing in a certain direction, and ultimately Christians called themselves progressives, or at least a large portion of them did, because you're going towards eternal life. And so humanistic values, many that I'm sure you would espouse, I, these are the types of things, again, even Friedrich Nietzsche would say, you have to be a Christian if you're really going to live them out. Because the grounding that you're talking about, I, I still see you talking about ethical systems and some of those being like, as long as you're not harming somebody else, then, you know, we can all live peacefully and it makes sense not to be a racist. Okay, maybe, but still, why wouldn't we go about, why is that more, what, we've evolved to that position rather than simply the strong eat the weak? Uh, why, if we're living in an atheistic universe, why do that when you can get away with something else and, and just, you know, be the selfish naive and be a freeloader. Why wouldn't you be a freeloader in a godless universe? That doesn't really make sense to me. And so there, there's these, all these questions. You, you are putting back good points in terms of these systems where you don't need God, and I'd agree with that. But again, my position is not trying to prove God. It's just trying to show a piece of reality that clearly, at least from my perspective, is way, it makes more sense and it motivates you to go after people of different races in very different ways than perhaps other systems. And it, it gives you a connection with people who are oppressed that would be very different than somebody who just believed in philosophical naturalism and really lived that out. Because, you know, for so many of these things, you're gonna, as an atheist, you so often have to detach your head and your heart, I find where you can try and debate things, but then when push comes to shove for something like human rights, why live for human rights if you're an atheist or just a naturalist? Again, you can, you can find ways to try and philosophize and hopefully get out from underneath it, one of them being, you know, well, we want everybody to be comfortable and no harm. Okay, but, but why disadvantage yourself from strictly a naturalistic theory of things 
and go after and help those who are really hurting, especially if you're going to lose resources or perhaps even lose physical comfort or enter physical pain. You know, it's like the movie Crash. You know, Matt Dillon, who's an incredibly strong racist, hops under the car to save that black woman who I can't remember her, uh, Thurman, I can't can't remember the actress's name. And he's about to potentially blow up and end his life, but he grabs her and he had just actually physically abused her sexually. And yet he makes that act and it doesn't really line up with what seems to be his theory and philosophy of life. And you know what the movie is highlighting is we will go to those extents. Now the question is why? And I believe in a godless universe, you have a tough time explaining that, a real tough time explaining that, as opposed to a universe where there is God, especially a Christian God. Yeah, um, might be at a little bit of an impasse here because I'm not really sure uh, what quite needs explanation there. Um, I mean, if we if we look at it in terms of a concrete problem, like how to best address uh the effects that systematic racism has had on the U.S. economy and society. And if we're looking at a particular marginalized group, so right now I'm staying, for example, in Milwaukee, and if we ask the question, um, how, do we best, how do we best help the uh, impoverished people and the marginalized people here in the city of Milwaukee? Uh, the answer to that question, most likely uh, from a political standpoint, we have separation of church and state as well, but is not going to involve an appeal to a divine authority. And I don't, not that that somehow disproves divine authority. I'm not saying any of that. I'm just saying that it's not necessary in these explanations. Um, whether it's a scientific explanation or I'm not really comfortable talking about political explanations because politics is not my cup of tea. Uh, but or in philosophical explanations and ethical explanations, you just don't really see that. And I don't I'm not sure of too many philosophers who would believe that it, that sort of explanation is necessary to begin. with. Totally agree. I agree with 110 percent of what you just said. But you started off with saying how and I'm not asking about the how I'm asking the why. So, so why are they doing these things? And they all have different answers. And, and that gets back to my original point of it's just amount. It, it, where we are at as a society today, if we're pushing secularism, it's just going to be a shouting match because there's no moral absolutes undergirding things. And with no God, you get no moral absolutes. So then all of a sudden there's tremendous confusion. And so that's the point I'm making. And then, so, so again, it's not the how, it's the why. And if the why is not there, we can still go about doing it and just not really talk about the, Maybe this will help. This woman named uh, Becky Pippert was auditing this Harvard class. She's an author. And she talked about how she was sitting in one of these Harvard classes. And this psychologist professor brought up a case study, which is this young girl was very distant from her dad. Things ended poorly with him. And... Basically, the psychology professor was saying, okay, how can we get about helping her and her anger? Becky raised her hand in the back of the class and said, well, wait a second. What about forgiveness? Like, can't they reconcile? Can they forgive and reconcile? And the psychology professor laughed and said, whoa, whoa, whoa. Religion, Christianity class is down the hall on your right because there's no place for Christianity 
in this kind of area in terms of the why. We have the how, but why? Like, why would you forgive and why even talk about that? And so I, you know, going historically, for example, you look, you look deeply into, into other times and places and you have, so 18th century enlightenment and through the 1800s too, when, the, when enlightenment hit, a lot of Christian ideals came out of the enlightenment and a lot of Christians actually, a lot of people don't realize this, but they, they actually really influenced the enlightenment in a healthy way. But something that was very atheistic that came out, it was humanistic was the thinking that we are all good and great and perfect human beings. And that's, that's the reason why that's hilarious to me is first of all, we just know that's not true, but secondly, because we worldwide, but especially Westerners. So, so whether it's you know, us in the U S or those in Europe have been trying. And, and for example, um, one of these ladies was the, head of, was the head of the welfare system in England for 30 years. And she said, I thought education and technology, just like your Milwaukee example, that's the how, right? We were able to do things and improve certain situations. But the biggest issue upon retiring was why do them? And then also, how, what, how is there going to be sustainable change in order to preserve human life and social systems? And she said, it all comes down to the human heart. And I think any honest psychologist, sociologist, any honest person would say, like Solzhenitsyn talked about and Martin Luther King Jr. talked about, the line of good and evil goes through every single human heart. Now, what are you going to do about it? And, and how, how do we know that? Why do we know that? And it's all based off the theistic understanding of the world, which is we know that we are a mix, like Paul talked about in Romans chapter 7, of good and evil. Even Paul said that about himself. And so we have to figure out what worldview fits that. And so this is connected to our, some of it's loosely connected to what we were talking about in the sense of the why. Like why, why not be a racist? Why preserve certain people's lives, especially if they are taxing society in some type of way? Why not follow certain Eastern European countries right now and saying, let's make sure we abort every single Down syndrome kid like, why not? Why not go back to the Roman Empire before Christianity really began to spread and say, we agree that all of the girls should be just thrown out on a on a garbage heap. And it was then the Christians that came and saved all those girls' lives. That's why the Christian church was up to two-thirds women um, after about 100 years. And so it's the why. Like, why do this? And, and I, I, I so appreciate atheist humanists who say, let's do it. And they'll go with tremendous conviction and do it. Why? Like, why do it? And I think in certain situations, some, some have good reasons, but definitely not great reasons, especially, especially compared to what Christianity says. Yeah. Uh, again, I, I think I see where you're coming from. Um, might want to pivot away from ethics because I mean, so yeah. I I don't necessarily think most people need a why, and I think your uh, presentation of history would suggest that you know it's because of Christian ethics that some of these things, such as the example of the women that you gave, took place. Uh, there's a lot of historical questions I'd want to ask there, 
I'm not sure that that would be <laughs> uh, worth or fun to listen to. Um, I did want to address some of the other things that you claimed. If you if you're okay with moving away, I mean, we could keep talking about that if you want to. But no, no, I was done with that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a very relevant topic right now. That's kind of part of the reason why I went, oh. went there. <laughs> sure. I mean, yeah. So um, you you claim that Christianity makes sense of reality. Um, makes more sense of reality. Um, and tell me if I, I got this right. Uh, emotional, intellectual, cultural? Yes. Um, so I want to return for a second, if you don't mind, to um, explanation. So when I when I hear reality, I, my mind goes straight to physical reality, maybe because of my <laughs> naturalistic tendencies. <laughs> but um, what would you say about that? Um, do, do you think that Christianity offers some sort of explanation of physical reality or aspects of physical reality? Uh, we could start there, I guess. Yeah, the reason why I brought up intellectual, emotional, and cultural is because I think you're an atheist, not just because the intellectual. You know, a lot of atheists think that they're atheists just because they're intellectual. I think we have way more biases than we realize. So do I. I have to check my biases, for example— that I am, you know, I'm a pastor's kid. Actually, statistically, I should not be a Christian. I should be an atheist. <laughs> you know, there, there's the reputation precedes itself in terms of, and the stereotype rather, of all, you know, pastor's kids are typically non-Christians. And that's for a number, we, I, I know all the reasons, but we won't get into them. They're, they're interesting. So, so I would say that to your, to your question on those three areas. I know you're talking about the physical, but so, so emotionally, you and I are both biased. Culturally, you and I are both biased. Like, white Westerners now are usually atheists, at least a large portion of them. There's still a huge portion of Christians. And because of immigration, there's many different religions coming in. But the question, simply doubting, doubting God, that, that you're stuck in a cultural moment right now in a, in a given location, right? Majority of the places in the world, you would not be asking this question. And you wouldn't be an atheist. Like, atheists make up, like, what, 8% of the world, 16% um, of the U.S.? I, and that's only decreasing because of fertility and other reasons. But, so there's the cultural, emotional, and, and us in the West, always atheists always just want to go with the physical intellectual. But I'm saying that that's not, it's not fair to reality. It's not fair to one's position, one's worldview. And so that's, that's why I go there. So, so when you say physical... So I can answer your question a little better. Uh, tease that out a little bit more for me. Yeah, so I would even include the emotional in the physical description because I think, uh, you know, I think psychology is a science that assumes uh, methodological naturalism. So explanations of mental phenomena, explanations of emotional states, all of those I think fall under the peer view of, of naturalism. So um, in, in that regard, um, I guess... And let's stick with the emotional then. Um, how how would Christianity explain? I'm going to assume, and feel free to disagree here, but uh, I think if you walk into a psych 1101 class in your closest college, uh, it's not going to be taught from a Christian perspective that it's going to assume a sort of methodological naturalism. So how would Christianity... I guess my question is, how would Christianity explain the emotional better than modern psychology would? It's a great, great question. 
So one of my closer friends, he's also kind of my mentor. He he has been in leadership at two of the top psych facilities in the world, actually, that are in the U.S., McLean in Boston, and then here in New Canaan, in Silver Hill. And he says to me that the Bible is the best psychology book known to man, ever written, hands down. And if you look into the Psalms, if you look into Proverbs, if you look into a lot of what Paul talks about, if you go deep, and it's so true, because it does take into effect and real consideration psychology issues come up because of physical reasons, social reasons, relational reasons, intellectual reasons, spiritual reasons, and most client-centered therapeutic textbooks you'll find are only going to take one, literally one peg out of that wheel. When the Bible takes an incredibly comprehensive look at the field of psychology and mental health, that is so much more nuanced than any type of modern day psychological textbook, it's scary. So that's the first. The second would be Irvin Yalom is the atheistic psychologist who I look up to the most. You know, bestseller, he's out there in Stanford, California, incredible professor. And yet I find it hilarious when he tries to tackle existential issues to bring about better mental health for folks. Because if there is no God, you, he keeps running up against things. Ultimate meaning, suffering, suffering that you can go with, suffering in a way that won't strip you of meaning. See, the Christian perspective, suffering can actually add to meaning. And that's true of other religions too. But atheists, there is no way that's, that suffering can somehow add to meaning. That, that's why it's dangerous for us to become more of a secular age here in the U.S., because sociologists and psycho psychologists will say that atheism has the least amount of resources to deal with suffering out of any other, call it philosophy or worldview, in the history of mankind. And if you really think out the implications, that, that makes sense. And, and a lot of atheists will actually say that. I've, I've debated one um, Bajini out there in, in London who wrote the Oxford Intro to Atheism. He actually admits that himself. But so... Those are two areas. I could, Michael, I could talk about this forever because I have a master's in mental health and then a master's in divinity, and so I did the integration. So I don't want to bore you with more, but those are two in terms of the Bible is the best psychological textbook. It fits humankind unlike any other. And then two, the Bible answers all those questions of meaning, hope, purpose, identity that brings about emotional and relational well-being unlike any other type of textbook or, or worldview could. So I, I think this would be a, a really awesome conversation to have with you maybe in the future. Um, Cause I, 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 I think this is a really interesting area and I will say that in terms of therapeutic psychology, in terms of uh, psychotherapy, uh, the spiritual health of the client, I, I think is becoming more and more of a, a thing that people take into consideration. So, mm -hmm. Uh, I, I agree there. Um, I guess what I was referring to, and, and I'm sorry, the history teacher in me would want to say to push back on the Bible is the best psychology book. Uh, <laughs> I, I would say that that's a, a, a historical anachronism that, uh, you know. Well, wait, I wasn't saying that's historical. Okay. I, was, <laughs> I was saying that my buddy said that. 
<laughs> I did say sociologists who are secular and atheists, and one that I talked to, who's who's also a best, he's written bestsellers, have said to me what I said historically about atheism getting the least amount of resources and dealing with suffering. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, in ter in terms of psychotherapy, I, I think if the patient is a believer, regardless of what belief system they hold, I think it's uh, you know. Uh, therapists will appeal to that belief system in order to help them work through some things. Um, but in terms of like, uh, so yes, I, I grant you that. But in terms of like uh, neuropsychology, in terms of, um, you know, uh, psychological uh, diagnostic manual, uh, in terms of, um, I, I guess, the more uh, brain focused part of psychology, I don't really see how um, Christianity or any sort of uh, supernatural explanations come into play there. In terms of things like consciousness, uh, we, we we can use consciousness if you want to. I think that's a can of worms. But what are you talking about? Um, you know, let's say that. Um, uh, let's talk about. Uh, we could talk about emotional states. We could talk about mental disorders. We could talk about uh, memory processing in the brain. Whatever. Yeah, simply trusting your memories from a physical point of view. Me, me actually trusting my memories that that you and I actually even started this debate, say what an hour ago. Um, trusting my memories takes a rational mind, and I believe you only get a rational mind from a rational being. You don't just get it by a blind, unguided process called evolution. I believe in evolution, but I, I don't believe in philosophical naturalism that takes evolution to such an extent that there is no God and there is no supernatural piece to things. And so that would be one in terms of kind of just trusting your memory. Things connected to stuff like consciousness, reflection on, on a rose. You know, I can look at a rose and reflect that I'm looking on a rose, reflect that I'm reflecting on looking at a rose, and go on ad infinitum. Okay, that's a huge part of consciousness that we know if there is no God, you have a tough time with just like having these discussions, things like meaning and purpose, seeking after truth. How do you get seeking after truth from a philosophical, naturalistic, atheistic perspective? It doesn't fit with evolution. Evolution is all about you know, strong, eat the weak, just survive, proliferate your species, but it says nothing about actually having these debates that we're having. And that also is directly connected to, like, why would you ultimately trust your mind if it's simply a highly evolved monkey's mind that, that even Darwin struggled with? I think Darwin actually really struggled with that one. And so, and then that gets back to the other piece of, of the brain and the mind of love. You know, a lot of atheists, I'll debate, especially on college campuses, this is becoming, and it scares me, it really scares me. More and more, and I guess as a naturalistic atheist, I, you, you may take this point of view. I, I think you may have to, actually. It's a form of determinism. They'll try and get out from underneath their determinism by, by forming a, a type of hybrid free will deterministic thinking. But then they're just going to say love is, you know, oxytocin, the cuddle chemical. It's endorphins. It's all these different types of things. And so you just connect all of these perfectly and then you have this evolutionary sense of wanting to mate with this specific being. And now here you have, that's love. 
and love is nothing more. It's not really connected in this ephemeral kind of way. It's not, it's not this type of existence in and of itself. It's not anything other than just firing neurons. And I think nobody's heart would tell them that. There are some brains that you have to detach from hearts that would say, hey, you know what? I think this is just really how it is. But no, I, we know that there's a greater reality to love than simply our endorphins and oxytocin levels. Wouldn't you say? Yeah. Um, sorry, I was I'm trying to... I threw a lot uh, at you. Yeah. <laughs> well, we went from uh, consciousness to love, and I'm still trying to think about the... But your question, your question was more alongside of the, of the line of love, I thought. Your original one with the emotions and, and the brain and... Because love is the one that's most often connected. But consciousness is, too. I Love, consciousness, beauty are typically all three that I get kind of at once when it comes to the brain. Yeah. Um, and I, I got to admit, Stuart, I, I didn't really expect the debate to go this route. So <laughs> I'm not <laughs> sure I have a great uh, answer here. I mean, I, I am a, a physicalist when it comes to consciousness. I think consciousness uh, is ultimately reducible to the brain. Um, not that that demeans consciousness in any way. I think it's still the most profound mystery of the human experience. I mean, it's, it's mind boggling, right? No pun intended, but um, so, and I, something like love though, well, there's a lot you said, okay. Um, yeah, so I'll just stick with love for the time being. Um, yeah, it is a. Uh, there are neurochemicals related to being in love. I mean, I don't know if that's really arguable. We can put your brain under a, a MRI and look at the chemicals going around to and say, oh yeah, he's it's hitting this part, this part, this part. He's romantically interested in this person, whatever. Um, but. And this goes to some some one of the things that you said before, and I, I don't think that we are not necessarily reducible to our biology. Um, humans have, and this is more of a philosophical observation, but uh, in many respects, humans have overcome our biological limitations. And in many respects, we're not beholden to pure biology. That's to me in ethics. That's where that that's where ethics comes in. I'm sorry, was somebody about to say something? No. Okay. Um, yeah, uh, ethics is not reducible to biology. Ethics is greater than biology because we have the ability to act against our basic biological inclinations. We have the ability to say, "Oh, my biological inclination to to hurt somebody that just insulted me is I'm not going to do that. That's wrong. I can't do that if I'm going to live in society." So yeah, and for me, it's the same with love. Uh, is love a result of a biological process? Yes, but it, I'm, I'm not a reductionist in that sense. I think you also have to take uh, culture, you have to take socioeconomic status, you have to take your historical location. I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of things that influence our ideas and understandings of love. Okay, can I ask one? I mean, so most atheists who I who I debate, especially on this channel, 
James allows me, and no, they they typically are actually the ones to initiate. Who have been Christians before, I'll ask them why they lost their faith. So if you're comfortable, I'd love to ask you just, just after this point, because that might help us also to, to finish off on one topic. But um, I think it's just interesting, though, because I agree with everything you said. I think when push comes to shove, though, somebody who is exiting this world or somebody who goes through a painful divorce, typically they're going to say love is a lot more than just the biological and all those other compartments that you mentioned. There, there's something greater than that, and it, it's, it supersedes those, those categories, just like sacrifice, which is connected to love. And, and so for, for me to go home tonight and say to my wife, hey, hey, you great looking thing, you know, what we got going is just oxytocin and, you know, our cultural moment here and location. It's, it's like, okay, well, so what's going to be the motivator for me then? Is it just going to be, you know, what, what are we going to compare ourselves to dolphins and say, we don't, we don't go and mate with others just because dolphins, you know, don't, and we're similar in kind. And it's, it's from an evolutionary perspective. That's why we remain committed to each other. Now, again, I think there's more to that, too. I think, yes, free will comes into play, and we decide to sacrifice. And that's what I was getting at in terms of negative versus positive freedom. Positive freedom is deciding, I want to see my grandkids, so I'm not going to eat that Twinkie tomorrow morning and the next morning and the next morning and the next morning. So I am I'm getting rid of certain freedoms in order to gain a larger freedom that I want. And that's what we see from the Christian point of view, which is like you just said, you are eliminating certain things that go against our nature. Now, the question is, why are you eliminating them? But, but I think you just, the point is, like, again, especially when it comes to committed relationships, especially when it comes to marriages, Christian reality makes way more sense than secularism. And studies, all the studies show that too, in terms of why to remain committed. Why not to just, just you know, cheat on your spouse? Why not to... Because a secularist could could come up with reasons not to, but ultimately the question is why though, and what's going to keep you from not doing that? Just like what's going to keep you from not stealing the SAT scores? Like, like why not be a freeloader if there's no God? Like why, why? Why? I mean, yes, you want to be a good person, maybe social contract theory, but you know, maybe all say, hey, huddle up, let's not do this. Okay, so it's for the betterment of us all. Okay. Is that really going to be better than if I make a commitment to God and say there are things like Judgment Day? And No, the, the motive is going to be a lot stronger, and, and that's why I think that's another piece to it. Yeah, I, I think we've circled back around to our uh, ethics conversation. <laughs> tell, me, tell me if you wouldn't mind, Michael. Why are you not a Christian anymore? Um, oh, boy. Um. You know, I'm not really quite sure how to best put this into words. Um, I mean, I've always kind of been, um, yeah, uh, I've always been a curious person. So uh, my interest in religion, Stuart, started when uh, I was younger. Uh, I was raised by a single mother and uh, we lived with my grandparents and um, I, uh, you know, getting into the psychological here. Uh, but I experienced uh, the death of my grandparents, my grandfather, especially who I viewed as a father, uh, hit me pretty hard. 
and uh, we were very poor. So my, my mother didn't have a lot of um, medical resources or psychological resources to um, to help with that. And so when I had all these questions about the uh, death of my grandfather, uh, she took me to the local church and I spoke with the local pastor and uh, got a form of uh, a form of counseling. It was Christian counseling. Uh, and that kind of naturally, in my mind, associated with uh, I started to associate religion with the answers to these big questions that I had about why certain things happened in my life. And this was further and this is kind of depressing, so I'm sorry, but uh, <laughs> this was further exemplified uh, in my early teens uh, with the death of my father uh, is actually what got me interested in the ministry. Um, thinking about those questions. I was always, I mean, looking back and not to turn this into a, a Michael therapy session, but, uh, <laughs> you know, I had a, a, some mental illness and other stuff related trauma, childhood trauma related to that, that I was trying to work out in the best way that I understood how. And for me, that came in the form, in the, in the impoverished Um, how I lost my faith. Um, I was always kind of naturally curious, though. I have a very interesting family dynamic. Um, so I grew up in kind of rural Bible Belt, Georgia. Um, however, on my father's side, my grandfather was a, a, a Buddhist from Cuba. So um, kind of always had these kind of two different uh, ideologies in my head, uh, two different um, worldviews going on. And so I was always kind of curious about spiritual slash religious matters and that in high school, especially in early college, got me interested in science, interested in the study of philosophy. I was a Christian throughout most of my undergraduate career. Um, I, I started off as a, as a strong evangelical Christian. Um, and then throughout my college, uh, time in college kind of slid from that to uh, a more nominal liberal Christian. And I, to be clear, I, I, I have a tremendous amount of respect for what the church did and does, especially in like the types of communities that I grew up in. Uh, oftentimes the only reason why we had food on our table for Thanksgiving and Christmas was because of the church. So hats off. Um, the first car that my mother ever got was from the local pastor. Uh, you know, so I, I you know, we might have our differences, but I, I do think that it the church does do good. It also does bad, but you know, whatever. That's any belief system, right? Uh, and so I, I kind of slid from the evangelical flavor of Christianity to uh, more liberal Christianity. Uh, and then from liberal Christianity, um, Darwin once in his, in his journal said that uh, the Anglican church was the uh, feathered bed for the falling atheist. Um, so for a more liberal Christianity, um, I, I kind of just eventually, uh, gave up on the God part and just accepted the, the social responsibility and social ethics part. So it sounds like a, a mix between suffering, answer questions, perhaps contained in the suffering connected to wanting to be more of a truth seeker in different ways. And that's interesting because Darwin, he almost gave up. Well, so he, he, in some ways he was like C.S. Lewis in his journey, because Darwin, even though even though people think it was his theories that that led him away from Christianity, it was actually the suffering. 
yeah. That's what he experienced. And and he, I, I, I doubt he became a Christian, but some have speculated that towards the end of his life that he actually started believing in God. And, and so it largely had to do with the pain that turned him away. He did at one point he actually said that he thought belief in God and what he was espousing in evolution would actually could go in tandem, could work together. And and so I just find that fascinating. And I find connected to C.S. Lewis because C.S. Lewis said the same sort of thing where he couldn't believe in God because of suffering, but then suffering and evil led him to believe in God, which typically never does for any atheist, but it did for him because he started to say, you know. Well, what's the standard here? Why am I calling evil evil? Why am I saying that? Well, why am I so bothered by this suffering? So, but man, thanks for sharing that with me. That it means a lot just to hear that and hear your uh, personal journey. And yeah, you know, I'm not. I don't know if you if you differentiate between religion and Christianity. Christianity is a religion. But at the same time, often, you know, the majority of people I know, even who come to my church, oddly enough, this is, that might surprise you, get Christianity and religion totally wrong. Because if I sit down with them one on one, they'll just say, oh, yeah, yeah be a good person. Right. And maybe you can throw Jesus in there. It's like, it's like, well, see, even Martin Luther thought that it was always about being a good person and getting on God's good side. But no, it's all about the grace of grace of God sending Christ to live and die for us. And that gets back to our sin problem. And I, that's another piece I was going to share tonight where I think. The Christian doctrine of sin, this could sound crazy, but makes sense of the world, makes sense of reality way more so than atheism and secularism does. Definitely humanism. And, and, and so kind of just getting back to what you were saying is just I would, I would certainly hope, and you probably already know this, but it's, it's fascinating that you say what you say because when I've suffered in my life, I've definitely doubted and gotten away from God. And yet it's so it's so fascinating how Christianity is considered the suffering religion. And that's because our, you know, the God suffered to the point of dying in the worst possible, most painful way on a cross. And so, you know, even David talk about psychology going back to the Psalms. You know, he talks about how death is my greatest friend. He says, get away from me, God, over and over again. And so, you know, I think there's moments there where for me, when I, I suffer now, it actually draws me to those kind of passages, suffering where I do have an ability to relate. And it's more than just, you know, I was on this atheist YouTube channel not too long ago. And this guy was like, man, it's so cool that you find so much inspiration in, in your Christianity. But that's all you find, right? It's like a great, it's like great music, right? And I had to explain to him that, no, it's beyond just this like philosophy of life. It's, it's, it's way more so where, no, I think the evidence points to God. The evidence points to actually Jesus having existed. The evidence points to him living, died, and resurrecting. And that's where the explosion of Christianity came from. And so it's not just this type of religiosity. I, I think religiosity, it's actually many symptoms in the DSM. A lot of mental health disorders are connected to religiosity. So I am not religious in that sense whatsoever. Yeah. So... Um... A couple of things to point out, and I'm not trying to nitpick, and I hope this doesn't come off as nitpicking. No, but um, yeah, so I, I spent quite a bit of time studying Darwin. Um, I'm I, I read through, and I'm not bra bragging about being a nerd here, but um, 
I read through a lot of his primary works and letters. Um, I don't see where uh, he accepted Christianity. I mean, I think you're right in saying that one of the things that led Darwin away from God was suffering, uh, specifically animal suffering, and specifically the sort of suffering that is implied by evolution. So Darwin was willing to accept that uh, you could be a Christian and accept the theory of evolution. I don't, and I personally don't think there's anything inherently illogical about that. Um, but it does raise some questions about, I mean, evolution is a brutal, brutal process. And so this, for Darwin, he couldn't quite reconcile why God would use a process like evolution to create life slash human beings. So he has this famous example uh, in his correspondence with Asia Gray, who was a very prominent Christian slash uh, botanist, I think he was in the United States at the time, uh, where Darwin is given, and I can't remember the name of the beetle, but it's the it, the worm. It's the wasp that lays its egg inside of the worm, and yes. then the egg eats its way out. Darwin just was like, used that as an example. He says, like, how, do, how does that make sense? Right. Um, so you are right there. Um, there was something else. Now I can't remember what it was because I'm thinking about that larva eating its way out of the worm. Um, <laughs> don't don't watch the videos. They're pretty, pretty gruesome. Um, what was it? You can respond. I'll try to think of what else I was going to say. Yeah, I would just respond to that and saying it's. It's interesting that Darwin went there because you, know, you look at praying mantises. Isn't it the? It's typically the wife that eats the husband in just this really brutal way. You know, you look at so many other. Yeah, exactly. If you look at so many other examples within the animal kingdom of just total brutality, and yet why is it that we as human beings? What is this? A higher level of sentience? I, I, no, I, I don't buy that. It's got to be more than that. Why are we so bothered by it? It's like we either need a lobot like like a lobotomy, or we just need to accept it and not be so bothered by it. Like, like why be so bothered by evil too? I think from an atheist point of view, you can be kind of bothered by evil, but you shouldn't you shouldn't really be that bothered by it. And I, I think that lends credence to to a Christian worldview. And, and there's it, it just it's kind of confusing to me. Again, when I hear this tremendously, tremendously, okay, so I, I live 30 minutes down the road from Sandy Hook, um, where that, that guy went in and shot up all those kids. And yeah. people were trying to get away from the word evil because they knew it was a religiously loaded term. And so they'd say things like, oh, really bad. It's like, no, you know that was really evil. Don't run away from the word evil. You know it was something that superseded just his brain chemicals that were off a little bit. You know it was something more than that. Yes, that that absolutely came into play, but there's something more. And I had a friend who worked on that case and was interviewed by New York City, um, I don't know, it was Fox 5, and uh, he and his secular psychologist friend both said, that's downright evil and we have no explanation for it. We cannot talk about these things in psychological terms, sociological terms, can't talk about his parents, can't talk about any of that. That is pure evil. And they were appealing 
to a supernatural realm. Both of them, even the secular guy. And so I think, I think Darwin would, I, I, it would be interesting to hear what, what Darwin would have to say about that. And, mm. and it gets back to, you know, this, this whole sin issue, good and evil. Any good narrative will show both good and evil. I think every single narrative, whether it's atheism or other philosophies, typically only cling to good or evil. They're never a mix. And if they are a mix, why are they a mix? Is, again, it gets back to the why. And these are these are pieces that that have to be considered. But you know, just another analogy. Like if you're out, in the, say, you know, in the in the Sudan, and you see a couple gazelle grazing together, and there's one sister who gets picked off by a lion. Well, the others are going to lift up their heads and and watch probably get a little concerned and, and frustrated, maybe a little sad, but most likely they're going to go back to grazing pretty quickly. And so again, that's just another example of many great minds have, have gone and looked at that and have been very troubled with why are we as humans so bothered by it? Mm-hmm. Why do we set up huge nonprofits to fight evil injustice, whether it's from the human realm or from, you know, with the animal kingdom. Yeah. And this spills over into getting back to the image of God that we talked about earlier. I have a serious concern. I, I joke about it usually, but it's actually kind of a serious concern where I see more and more people falling in love with dogs. And there's studies showing that people would save their dogs over the life of somebody that they wouldn't know. And that, that right there, if there is no God, that's fine. That makes total sense. Because there's no being created in the image of God where you have worth and value above an animal. And so so slipping into that, again, everything gets – there's tremendous frustration. There's chaos. There's confusion if human beings created in the image of God goes away. Uh, lots of points there. Um for one, if you if you hear loud snoring in the background, that's my uh, eighty pound asthmatic dog. So, um, who I might, you know, I guess it depends on the person. I was on cue. Uh, <laughs> um, so, and we don't have to get into the problem of evil. Uh, I, I will say very quickly. Um, I, I think the problem of evil is a evil. I don't I don't have any problem using the word evil. It does carry theological slash religious connotations that some people might not be comfortable with. Uh, as long as we define our terms, I'm fine with it. Um, but very quickly, uh, so you, we could distinguish, of course, between natural evil and moral evil. Uh, we, we were talking kind of with the Darwin example about natural evil. Um, philosophers like J.L. Mackey would really uh, – explore this concept. And I I think where people have an issue is not the fact that natural evil occurs. I mean, you can't really call anything that happens in nature evil because saying that implies that there's some sort of choice that was made. uh, And, you know, it's it's just a natural process. It's not, the the lion isn't evil for eating the gazelle. The lion's just doing what lions do, right? Same with the, as tragic as it might be, but a natural disaster, right? The the hurricane that destroys the city, the hurricane isn't evil. It's it's just a hurricane. Um, Where it becomes a issue slash problem is where you get into gratuitous suffering caused by these things, right? 
Um, and, you know, the, the classic problem of evil framed within a Christian framework, if you have an all-powerful and all-good God, uh, you, you can kind of frame it in a logical way to kind of show uh, why it would be an issue. But again, I, I think that might be a different debate for a different day. <laughs> yeah. Um, that might be, if you have any other ideas that you guys would like to discuss, otherwise that may, might be a good transition for going into the Q&A. Sure. I'm good with that. Awesome. And do want to remind you folks, first, our guests are linked in the description box, so if you'd like to hear more from Michael or Stuart, you certainly can hear more by clicking on their links, and that includes if you're listening via the podcast, as each Debate is uploaded to the podcast, usually within 24 hours of the debate being live, with the guests linked there as well. And so, again, if you're listening via podcast as well, you can also hear plenty more of Stuart or Michael by clicking on that link in the description. Also, though, my dear friends, got a couple of quick announcements besides that. We had mentioned the in-person tickets for our first ever conference are on sale. That's linked in the description. If you are anywhere near the Dallas area, you don't want to miss it. That's January 15th through 16th, and we're absolutely pumped for it, as well as for this first question in the Q&A coming in from I Got Cookies. Says Stuart will be an atheist eventually. Mark my words. Stuart, what are your thoughts? You know, James, it's interesting. On your channel, I, I get that on a semi-regular basis. It makes me do some soul-searching every time I, I end these debates. That's funny. Yeah, frankly, you're not the only person. I see it. A lot of people seem to accuse theists of eventually they'll become an atheist. But anyway, this one from Euthyphro Dilemma says, Can a rapist repent and go to heaven? There goes that justice. I think that they're saying... Stuart, what about the rapist who, if you say that they can turn to Jesus, where is their punishment? Well, there's still, you get throughout scripture, there's still going to be punishment for the believer as well. So there's still going to be a level of justice, and that's what I'm getting at. It's a perfect mix of justice and grace. But that repentant person, so take, um, uh, forgetting her name, it was that huge case in the early 2000s, of that woman in Texas who pickaxed to death her husband, who she found sleeping with another woman, and she pickaxed her to death, too. Anyway, long story short, she was in jail, got, was getting the death penalty, and she was in jail for something like, I don't know, seven years? And she repented, found Christ. People in that system and out of the, the jail system as well were saying this woman could not have drastically more changed her personality and character. It's scary. And then she got the death penalty. And I'm not getting political here. I'm actually getting more theological in the sense of that would be an example, just like the thief who died on the cross, who was also probably a murderer. Deathbed conversions and changing your heart, that's the beauty of grace. And yet God says there's still going to be judgment. It's not going to be purgatory. The person's not going to hell. They're still entering eternity with him. But they're still going to face a form of his punishment. You got it, Anne. Thank you very much for this question. Euthyphro Dilemma as well says, Stuart, marriage is to serve as some utility in our finite life. Do you agree that you aren't the same person as in your 20s? 
Is marriage ordained or a consequence of geography? And will you be married in 100 trillion years? <laughs> I'm not sure if I totally get the first half there. James, if you really get it, let me know. But I can break that up in pieces for you, too. What's that? I can break it up in pieces for you because it is. There's a lot of questions in here. There's a lot of moving pieces. But they said, Stuart, marriage is to serve as some utility in our finite life. Do you agree that you aren't the same person as in your 20s? I don't know if those questions are for sure related. I think that they're supposed to be, though. Yes. Yes, across the board. There. You. And in, in terms of the location, I think the second part is location, right? Yes, my wife and I, she is from California, I'm from Connecticut, so fairly far apart there. And I was graduating literally from grad school when she came into our grad school. So it was kind of a last second, seemed really lucky. I would call there, yes, God was in the works, I would say, for a number of different reasons and ways. So yes, I believe that, that occurs too. And what was the last part? The last part was... <clears throat> Is your marriage ordained or a consequence of geography, which you basically already answered? Yep. This one coming in from Barry Berry says, Stuart, according to your quote-unquote morality, what happens to a lifelong sex trafficker who finds Jesus and repents at the end of his life? Also, what happens to his victims if they lead a virtuous life but die without accepting Jesus? Wow. That's deep. That's intricate. Yeah, I, so that's the freakiest thing about grace. I, I love that these questions are coming in. I have not heard your camp ask these kind of questions before, James. And I would, I would say that that's the freakish thing about grace. You still get a level, level of justice, like I said. God, God is not going to allow anybody to be ripped off. So start with his character. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. You see his grace shown even in the Old Testament. Yes, you see judgment, too. Absolutely, of certain people groups, Jews as well. But then you also see him dying on the cross, his only son dying on the cross for our sins. So firstly, start with his character. He seems pretty filled with justice and grace. And then also understanding that even our good, see, this is important because our good works are not is what, that's the whole thing with these two questions. These whole two questions are, are still not taking into consideration sin and brokenness and darkness and evil in this world that are in our human hearts. Because all these questions have to do with is, am I a good enough person? I didn't murder. I should be in. This person did murder. They should be out. Well, hold on. It, again, it's, it's not a matter of, of goodness and badness. It's a matter of changing your heart, deciding I am not going to live my life just for myself. I'm not saying Michael is living just for himself. But I'm not going to live my life in a way where I am not saying that God exists and going to actually say that there's a king who is who's on the throne of this kingdom. And so at the end of the day, still recognizing that, yes, it's a freakish thing, this grace. That's why someone like Newton, who actually was one of the leaders of the slave trade, who became a Christian, said, but therefore, therefore, by the grace of God, go I. And basically what he was implying was, I could have done endless amounts of atrocities if it wasn't for the grace of God. And so it all comes back to his grace. He's not going to let anybody get ripped off. And yet at the same time, every single person is never too far gone. And that's the most beautiful thing about it, to change and then to have eternal life with God. 
You got it. Thank you very much. For this question as well, I got cookies. Says Stuart can't bring up racism when slavery is in the Bible. Yeah. Okay, so I'm guessing that person means the Bible is a proponent of slavery. Okay. I think that they mean that it's slavery based. That it's endorsing. I think that, sorry, what I meant to say is, I think that they're saying that the slavery in the Bible is race based. And therefore, you can't bring up racism and say that it's wrong when you're a Bible believer. Well, first of all, it's not race based. You know, different civilizations, in a sense, it's race based. But at other times, it's not race based. And I think they're so saying in the Bible specifically, it's race based, that, that it's condoned. Oh. Um, no, no, there's there's examples in scripture of it not being race based. Um, other parts, absolutely, you know, yes, the Israelites did have slaves from conquered people groups. And yes, Philemon and Onesimus were different racial groups. But no, it, it was not always based off of just race. Like, slavery existed based off of the spoils of war in the Old Testament as well. And and people sold themselves with the same race into slavery in order to, to make a make a living for themselves. So so no that that's not the case. I think that but I think that they're to be fair, just to I think yeah, yeah. I'm I'm giving them a charitable I'm trying to give a charitable read of their question. I think that they're saying even if there's one example, even if they're saying maybe not all of the examples of slavery in the Bible are based on race, I think they're saying that even if there's just one that's based on race, then what do you say to that with regards to you're bringing up racism early as being evil. Sure, yeah, it was in a system. It was caught in a system where there was slavery going on. And sometimes that slavery, with it, you would have a slave who was of a different race than the enslaved person or people group. But look at how the system fell apart based off of the gospel of Christ which was not Christians taking over the government and, and changing laws overtly in that kind of way, but it was at the gospel where you actually have your God becoming a slave and pushing so hard for equality for Galatians 3.28, for example, neither slave nor free, all are equal, or going back to Genesis, all made in the image of God. That's why you had the William Wilberforces. That's why, gosh, Douglas himself... Um, was was not just an abolitionist, but he was an evangelist saying clearly Christianity as a foundation is going to go about breaking down racism more so than any other philosophy of life could. You got it. And thank you very much for your question. Endo says for both of you. So we'll start with Michael on this one. They said, have you heard of the evil God challenge? Do you have a good response to it? It seems all the theodicies can be reversed in favor of an evil God just as well. So I think that you guys have probably heard like Stephen Law has talked about the evil evil uh, God as a potential rebuttal to the, the moral argument for theism. I think that they're saying with regard to any argument for theism, though, can you just as uh, well easily say that it's an argument for an evil God just as much as it is for a good God? Um, I'm, I'm going first. Is that correct? Sure. Yep. Um, I, I've heard of the evil God. I've, I'm not familiar with it to the point that I can really comment on it. So I'm afraid I'm going to have to not give an answer there. <laughs> 
I don't know. You got it, Stuart. This is Stephen Law from what Cambridge? Where's he? Right. I think Stephen Law. You know, he had originally popular. It was became popular from him when he argued that the moral argument is no better of an argument for a good God rather than an evil God. And I think this person's trying to apply it more broadly, saying maybe is this true in the, <clears throat> they said, it seems all the theodicies, namely the explanations for the problem of evil, can be reversed in favor of an evil God just as well. So, for example, I mean, the one of the more common responses being free will. But, well, Stuart, I'll give you a, a chance. Whatever of your own theodicies, does the evil God uh, explanation fit just as well with that theodicy or that explanation for the problem of evil? Well, Stephen Law, we debated on our YouTube channel. So if you go into our YouTube and just type in uh, Stephen Law, he was a fascinating guy. We, we tried to push him pretty hard on his, his thinking on evil, especially. He had a little bit of a tough time. I saw his debate with William Lane Craig on this topic as well. But th this is the one he's known for. And and no, I'm, I'm like Michael. I'm not as familiar with it. He, when, when I debated him, he didn't he didn't go that route. Um, he went more so the suffering route. But but no, I, I think it makes way more sense. The theodicy argument from from the point of view that it's an all good God and especially moral obligation i mean how are, how are you going to justify it being an evil like like you could try to and it could work but it wouldn't it wouldn't make anywhere near as much sense as if you had a immaterial all-powerful omniscient personal all good being that's going to make decisions for for human beings to, to flourish best you got it, and thank you very much for this question coming in from Sunflower. says, MG, science has usurped archaic invocations of God to explain things, yet it may never explain the, quote, something from nothing slash infinite regress problem. How then can it ever sufficiently explain reality? I'm not sure what MG. Oh, that's Michael. Sorry, Michael. For some reason, I was. Go ahead, Michael. Um, I'm sorry. Can you repeat it again? I want to make sure I understand. What you they're asking. said science has usurped archaic invocations of God to explain things, yet it may never explain the quote something from nothing slash infinite regress problem. How then can it ever sufficiently explain reality itself? Yeah, um, to nitpick about language a little bit, I, I wouldn't call uh, divine explanations archaic. I mean, I, I think that, you know, anyway, um, I'm not sure that infinite regress is a problem. I mean, it's a problem if you accept uh, Aristotel Aristotelian cosmology. Of course, uh, we've we've gone beyond Aristotelian cosmology. Um, there's not an infinite regress if you accept uh, the Big Bang cosmological model. Um, we go back to a singularity. Um, now, I don't think that singularity is a physical event. I think it's just the breakdown of uh, Einstein's relativity equations. So um, I'm not sure how I would answer that question. I don't, I don't think there is an infinite regress, I guess, would be my answer. You got it, and thank you very much for this question coming in from Endo. says, our secular humanism focuses on well-being. 
Christian morality focuses on what God wants. Isn't it better for us to focus on what's good or healthy for us? No. No. <coughs> no, no. The, it, the Christian well-being, yes, in worshiping the God of the universe, who doesn't just want our best, but who wants a loving relationship with us, that would bring us a type of human flourishing and bliss that would be way stronger than just some type of dictator who wanted to us to worship him and him just to get goody goodies from it. No, he's the God of the universe. He, he doesn't need us to worship him. He's sharing the Trinity that he has. He's, he's Father, Son, Holy Spirit, perfect community, perfect unity in that kind of way, perfect love. And he's sharing that with us in order to flourish. We talked about the God-shaped hole. No, no and I, I tried to bend over backwards. We, obviously, we didn't have time to go over all of them. But identity, hope, suffering, freedom, meaning, purpose, all of these things are connected to human flourishing or, or undoing things like suffering. And all of those are connected to the God-shaped whole things, which is you have God fill those holes, and now all of a sudden you're going to flourish as a human being way more so than if you didn't have God. And I can speak to this personally, not just my own personal testimony in regards to just me, but I've done psychology and therapy at UMass General Hospital, at different big churches. And I can tell you, spirituality, like Michael talked about, is not just the first question that is now asked in the therapy office, but it's also one that if you really want to get somewhere with somebody, you're going to ask those existential questions. And if you don't bring God in, you're not going to get far in the conversation at all. You got it, and Thank you very much for your question. Coming in from Hacking the Headline says, I really enjoy these debates. Thanks for all your hard work on this channel. It is our pleasure and all credit to the speakers, which are linked in the description, folks. So we really do want to say this is a great opportunity just to say thank you to not only Michael and Stuart, but thank you to all of the speakers as they're the lifeblood of the channel. And they are indeed linked in the description right now if you want to hear more from Michael or Stuart. Barry Barry, thanks for your question, said Stuart. You said, quote, with racism, there is no grounding from the atheist position for why that's bad, unquote. Are you being truthful here? Has no atheist ever explained to you why racism is wrong from our perspective? Honestly. I don't think I said that. And if I did say that, I changed it later because I remember saying something that was not that which was that Christianity gives you a better grounding and fits with a reality that says racism is wrong more so than something like atheism does. And you I can all, give all those reasons again, but that'll take at least another seven minutes, so I won't do that. This one coming in from Duke of Sahib says, Stuart, when God commanded the killing of the Amalekite babies in 1 Samuel 15, would you say that was a moral command? Would you have followed his command? Yeah, first off, with Jericho, Canaanites, Amalekites, God can do whatever he wants. And I know atheists and me as a theist actually don't like hearing that. But if he's the God of the universe who's created everything, he can do what he wants. Secondly, the Amalekites, he has specifically gave 400 years to repent and change. Just change, to change their lifestyle. 400 years. 
And he said, if that doesn't happen, judgment is coming. And so what happens is, yes, those even babies are actually obviously killed. And yet what's so interesting is elsewhere in 1 Samuel, you get with King David when he loses his baby because of his adulterous relationship with Bathsheba. He prays and says, I will go to him. He will not come to me, showing that babies will be in heaven. So those Amalekite babies will probably be in heaven. And an eternal destination is a little bit more gratifying than an earthly one. But I'm not using that to justify, obviously, just, you know, taking a Pauline passage and saying, oh, it's better to be with the Lord than than here and present. Saying, oh, well, I might as well just kill myself. Well, no, obviously not. Elijah's not allowed to kill himself when he's depressed because an angel comes and says, no, you're going to be here. God has a plan for you here. But the Amalekites, again, that 400 years is crucial where, yes, there is a, a form of judgment. There's even holy war by the Jews in the Old Testament. And yet it's always for a reason. And there's always grace connected. But you but see, so many of my atheist friends who push me on these types of texts, they don't read the whole Old Testament. And so they don't see the long narrative arc of grace and forgiveness, even of these tribes and people groups who've been shown justice. And there's no genocide, which is the wiping out of the complete people group, because all of them pop up later on. You got it, Anne. Thank you very much for your question. This one coming in from Mr. Monster. Let's see. They've got a two-parter. Sassy. They say, doesn't religion only explain fantasy? How can you convince me that an innocent child is born with sin, Stuart? Use facts, please. Very sassy. I just had two. Those are my facts right there. Both of them are born with sin issues. I, I debated two child psychologists who were both humanist secularists. And Sigmund Freud, I, I go by Sigmund Freud. Id, ego, superego. Sigmund Freud was not a Christian. He was a secular Jew. And yet he said, absolutely, people are fallen, sinful beings born into this world. Sigmund Freud has influenced, you could argue... The U.S. culturally more so than any other figure in the history of the U.S. And I think he was on to something there when it comes to us being broken and born broken. And you just have to have a couple kids to understand that they have an incredibly beautifully, seemingly perfect side, but then also a sinful side. And it's that blending, again, of good and bad, good and evil beautiful and imperfect that the Bible talks about unlike any other worldview. Can I respond to that question sure. as well? You bet. Okay. <laughs> um, I, I think we want to be, um, be careful to uh, still man our opponent's positions as much as we possible for what it could be fair uh, debaters slash interlocutors. Um, and I also want to emphasize the fact that um, most religions are an attempt to explain reality. Uh, physical reality, um, emotional reality, as Stuart explains, uh, as Stuart claimed. Um, religion uh, in the ancient world especially, not so much anymore, because going back to my argument, I think that modern science has replaced these explanations with naturalistic explanations, but religion was an attempt to explain physical reality, social reality, ethical reality. Uh, it's, it's not just something that people did on certain days of the week that they thought didn't have any bearing. I, I think for sure it does. You got it. 
And thank you very much for your question coming in from His Holiness as a small amount of cash to see the interperson debate happen. Thanks for your support. And do want to remind you folks, actually, I don't know, I don't think I mentioned it in the stream yet. We are, well, I, I did mention the conference, but I do want to mention we have a crowdfund that is helping support making this conference happen. As airlines, we are flying in all of the speakers. Airlines don't give away flights for free. And so that is why we are having the crowdfund as well as selling the tickets. And hopefully, if we can break even on this event, I want to let you know we plan on doing a second debate con conference. And we also want to let you know if there's any additional funds that come in, 100% of them are being reinvested back into Modern Day Debates Debate Con conferences. So that means if you happen to put in any amount for the crowdfund, 100% of it is guaranteed to go toward putting these conferences together where we get people from different walks of life having conversations like these. So I'll throw that crowdfund link in the chat now. And thanks for your support. This one coming in from Zach Morgan says, <clears throat> Stuart, do you stick with your beliefs out of fear of what it would cost you if you happen to abandon them? Oh, it's interesting. This atheist said to me and my dad, we're pastors at this church, and he said, I would hate for you guys to abandon your faith. I'd be fearful of that because of how many people would supposedly drop off and lose, you know, emotional health, spiritual health, lose their Christianity. And I thought that was ridiculous. I mean, that was very kind of him to say that. But no, I don't have I don't have fear. I, maybe the question would be better put, at least to me personally, is do you have this faith because you have fear of death? And I think a lot of Christians could potentially have that. You know, some people said that Martin Luther even wrote all of his books, his 95 theses and everything, with this fear of death behind his theology. And that's why he, he had his Christianity and Protestantism the way he had it. And so, so no, I have no fear of, of giving it up. But again, that's also connected, connected to biases. Biases that we that we ha all have, whether it's fear, whether it's I want to sleep with whoever I want to sleep with, even though that's against the, the Christian ethic, love ethic. It, it's what Tom Nagel, who wrote Mind and Cosmos and is big around here in New York City, he's at Columbia or NYU. He's a, he's a secularist, but he says, even as a secularist, I know I, I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the world to work that way. Is the quote. And so he says, honestly, I have many Christians who are incredibly gifted in their studies and academia. So that's unnerving for me. And I am very, very cognizant and aware of my biases because I don't want there to be a God because then I would have to curb certain areas of my life style. You got it. And thank you very much for this question coming in from, do appreciate it, Barry Barry. Two seconds is loading here. Very embarrassing. I'm not at my usual uh, place here. I'm at the public library, and sometimes things are a little bit slow over here as I've got a list of questions, but sometimes it takes a little bit longer to load. Reminder that our guests are linked in the description. And this one coming in from Connie Upstate says, how can you know the things actually witnessed by people were done by an all-powerful, all-knowing God instead of an advanced being like an alien? <laughs> So I'm guessing that's to me. 
<laughs> I think so. <laughs> so no, yeah, yeah. Didn't Richard? I think Richard Dawkins one time said that there could be aliens, and I think um, Joe Rogan said a similar kind of question. He he said he believed in in aliens. I think he's taken <laughs> that back. But it's it's um no, you don't. There could be absolutely. There's no way for me to pick apart directly if i'm going to say certain things happen to me supernaturally or i experience this crazy miracle there's no way for me to absolutely prove to you that that wasn't some type of other celestial being or a physical thing that was chemical in me or i, I could say it was drug related perhaps i could i could prove that to you but th this is the problem with Christians who debate from that point of view, which is I'm going to try and, and absolutely claim that it's certainly from God when so often it's not. And then you get into crazy different testimonies of, you know, my kid went to heaven and back, but I made it all up. And then a lot of Christians look really bad because there was this claim that God had this encounter with. So, so no, trying, trying to make those claims and proofs in those types of situations, I don't go there. You got it, and thank you very much for your question. This one coming in from Unahef Hecu says, for both and James, if Christianity is true, why can't we get Medicare for all in America? Medicare for all. <laughs> what do you think, guys? <laughs> Uh, Stuart, you want to go first? Michael, this is you. You like the <laughs> politics. I'm going to leave this one with you. <laughs> uh, is if well, the, I mean, the first part of the question: if Christianity is true, that's not the position I was arguing for. Um, uh, I, I think. I, think I guess it's I'll maybe say more rhetorical. We can jump to the next <laughs> one. I wasn't going to answer it either. <laughs> well, if you really want, you can. But I, I'm going to jump into the. I, I let it go too long. That was my fault. This is. Thank you very much for your question. This coming in from Contrarian420 says, <clears throat> Stuart, you previously said you've not read Hindu or Zen books like the Vedas. Why wouldn't you explore these teachings before claiming Christianity as the ultimate truth? I never said that. I never said I've never read any of the Vedas and the Upanishads. Gotcha. I, haven't read, I haven't read as much as I should have by now. Library closes in 20 minutes. If you have items, you you got it. Next one coming in from... Thank you. I found... Oh, I did find the question. This one coming in from Randolph. Thanks so much for your question. <clears throat> oh, gosh. Two seconds. Still loading. <clears throat> says, Stuart, why does... Ask Stuart, why does he think just laws are not possible without God? Is he not familiar with John Rawls's veil of ignorance from a theory of justice? Yes. Justice, Right and Wrongs, I believe is his book, is a good one. No, I, I think I would have to be reminded that it's, it's been a while since I read that, but I, I think it's... it's um, you can have a form of just law, but again, where is that? What's your definition of justice? And is there going to be, is it going to be how subjective, how much of an, what type of ethical system is it going to be getting back to Michael's earlier point? And 
look at our justice system today. How did it come about? And somebody like who's the lawyer who did who did um, O.J. Simpson's case He's at Harvard. I can't remember his name, but he talked about how justice systems, if you look in the history of the world, if you take like a shame and honor society, if you take a secular society and then you take a Christian society, we are so formed by the Christian humanism, not secular humanism, Christian humanism that we have in our culture that if you have somebody like an old granny crossing the street and she drops an orange, you're going to go help her, even if it sacrifices an extra 10 minutes of your time, because you genuinely want to help her, rather than something like a shame and honor system where you're going to go help her because you want to look a certain way or you're terrified of potentially not helping this old lady and other people seeing you not help her. Now, we could still have that in our Christian culture, but again, the Christian culture is, you know, you sacrifice for somebody especially if it's somebody who is weaker than you. You got it, and thank you very much for this question. Coming in from Barry Barry says, Stuart, can you please elaborate on this justice that sinners face in heaven? Because it sure feels like you're just making things up as you go along. <laughs> I hope not. I've been a pastor now for a little while. That would be dangerous. Scripture is it's fairly... It's fairly quiet, so I wouldn't – the guy is right, whoever's asking that, to an extent, in the sense of I wouldn't want to get too detailed and say that, you know, if Michael goes back to his faith, or maybe it's once saved, always saved, so Michael <laughs> is still saved, even though he's an atheist, or claims to be. But, you know, I've been a Christian and never claimed to be an atheist, so I'm going to be on a higher rung than Michael in heaven. No. That would be heresy. There's nothing in Scripture saying that. My point was more so you get all the, for example, Pauline texts talking about striving, striving to win the race, to win the crown that cannot rust. All of that type of language, and then he talks about hope, hoping not to give up what I've already gained. So many of his passages sound like that there's still... We're not going to be working off our bad deeds or anything Hindu-related like that in heaven, but there's still going to be some form of, whether it's levels or whatever it might be, what type of potential potential punishment like I was alluding to, we don't know. We're not certain on that, and yet it certainly seems like, no, if God has, God has placed you here at a certain time for a certain reason, if you choose to use your free will— in a horrible kind of way, and then just repent. Say, I'm, I was going to plan to repent anyway. Good, good luck. Good luck playing, playing little sneaky, cheeky boy or girl around God like that. You got it, Dan. Thank you very much for your question. This one coming in from Bez says, If I build a wobbly table, does that make me perfect to that table? If I make an imperfect species, does that make me perfect to that species? I'm assuming that's for Stuart. I think yeah. so. <laughs> um, yes. In order to ha have a standard of goodness, you need to understand that there is a standard where there's a, a squiggly line versus a straight edge. 
You got yes, it. And thank you very much for this question. Coming in from Mango T says, <clears throat> some sort of weird conversation with Millahan, but Sunflower says, Michael, what's your best reason for why an atheist should not commit an immoral action for personal gain as long as they're certain they won't get caught? Yeah. Um, somebody was named Euthyphro Dilemma earlier. Uh, this goes back to a question that was raised in uh, Plato's Republic. Um the ring of Gyges example, right? Would you uh, do something that you knew you could get away with? Um, I mean, again, uh, it depends on what the action is. If we're going to go the consequentialist route, Uh, if you're going to go the virtue ethic route, um, doing acts that are potentially harmful to somebody, such as theft of property would uh, damage your character as a person. So you would not want to do that. Uh, and if you're going the utilitarian route, um, you know, stealing is not something that benefits the greatest good for the greatest amount of people. So you wouldn't want to do that there either. You got it. And this one coming in from, by the way, folks, we have so many questions that we, this is the last, we can't take any more new questions. This one coming in from Mr. Monster says, I think we should put more importance on going on in life than what happens in the afterlife. Do you agree? No, yes and no. C.S. Lewis put it perfectly, saying, if you aim at earth, wait, wait. if you aim at heaven, you'll get earth thrown in. If you aim at earth, you'll get neither. I thought that's the best way to put it, where, you know, if we just, I do not meet too many Christians. I've met one who was a good friend of mine. She said, actually, heaven being out there, gives me less motivation to really work hard in this life. Every other that I've known, it, it's more motivation because it's not just going to be 70 years here for us on this planet, and that's it. It's not just going to be working for the next generation, and that's it. No, we're going to keep actual human relationships, and God has us here for a reason. He created this place with his own hands in the dirt, so he created us to do things like work and make meaning and purpose. And so it gets back to, I mean, take it up with Steve Jobs, take it up with Leo Tolstoy, take it up with so many of these these large figures who said without eternity, just focusing on this planet could get a little depressing. Gotcha. This one coming in from Mango T claims, uh, Stuart, all religious people are on the mental illness spectrum studies show. Are you mentally healthy? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I want to debate that guy. <laughs> Sounds funny. I like it. This one coming in from Sun... Got that one. Mr. Let's see. Oh, I think we, we might be caught up. Let me just double check. Oh, we did. Barry, Barry, thanks for your question. This is the one I meant to get to earlier. It says, why do Christians refer to Jesus' crucifixion as, quote, the worst death imaginable, unquote, or the worst way to die, unquote, I can literally think of 3,000 worse ways to die just off the top of my head. Yeah, so that was historically considered the worst way. You can actually dig into stuff. They have a good amount of history, I think, based on crucifixions. And it's basically, you know, you get the word excruciating from crucifixion. So the Romans 
were the ones who came up with crucifixion. And it was their, they thought it was worse than even throwing people to the lions or, or putting them on, you know, impaling them to death because it was a minimum, a minimum of three hours usually that someone would hang there with nails, not being able to breathe typically, but just enough because you'd push yourself up by your feet to your diaphragm just barely enough to, to get suck air. But some people, it was it was over a day that they would hang there. And so, yeah, sure, you can imagine different ways today, but it was considered back then the, the most torturous. You got it. And that's actually it for questions. Oh, wait, we did have one from Noli. Thanks so much for your support. Appreciate your super sticker, Noli. Uh, who was also a debater on the channel oftentimes. So we do want to say thank you so much, folks. For listening, if you want to hear more from Michael, if you want to hear more from Stuart, their links are waiting at the top of the description box right now. You can go to their channels and hear plenty more. I want to say thank you, Michael and Stuart. It has seriously been a true pleasure to have you guys. Thank you for having us. Thanks, James. It's been great. A hundred percent. I will be back in just a moment, folks, with a post credit scene, giving you updates on things like upcoming debates. So stick around for that. We'll be back in just a moment. And once again, our guests are linked below. gentlemen thrilled to have you here want to say a couple of things before i've got to go i'm actually i'm traveling i'm visiting my folks in wisconsin which i'm super thankful to get to see family and friends during the holidays but 
I am at the library. They close, and I've got to be out of here in just a few minutes. So I do want to mention, though, my dear friends, a couple of things that we're absolutely pumped about. I see there in the old live chat. Good to see a Dharma defender, known unknown, Carm M., and Hamilton CA, thanks for being with us, as well as Bradders and Dark and TC the Unbeliever. We're glad you were here. And want to let you know, though, folks, I have pinned at the top of the chat the crowdfund link. And I've got to tell you, it's not just to make sure that this debate conference happens, although that's true. I mean, basically... If we have enough support through the crowdfund and through ticket sales, then we want to have a second Modern Day Debate DebateCon conference in May of 2022. But the trick with that is we need to raise the necessary funds because we're flying the speakers in. We're covering their costs in terms of hotel. And I've got to tell you, folks. We are absolutely pumped for it, but if you are willing to throw into the crowdfund, not only are you supporting the conference, but some of these debates, for example, the debate shown at the bottom right screen, bottom right of your screen, will only be live for those who are either, one, putting into the crowdfund, or two, those who are a Patreon supporter, or three, a channel member. And so we are not able to have all of the debates be live. Some of them will be only for those who throw into the crowdfund. And one of those debates that's actually going to be, because there are actually four of them, one of the debates that is going to be those is the controversial, juicy debate at the bottom right of your screen. That one, you will only be able to see it live if you throw into the crowdfund. So I do want to encourage you, the crowdfund link is in the description box, and I have pinned it to the top of the chat. Click on that link, help us make this possible, and be able to watch all of the debates live that, you could say, that weekend, as we're going to have 10 debates during the conference. And you might be wondering, though, you're like, ah, James, I don't know about all this. Like, this is kind of new to me. Like, what exactly? What I was saying was, this conference is going to be epic. I'm showing you right now, my dear friends, DebateCon is going to be gigantic January 15th through 16th. You don't want to miss it. And Indiegogo is the crowdfund platform that we're using to raise funds to make this conference possible, as well as, of course, we told you we were selling tickets. And I want to just take you through a little walkthrough, because you might be like, James, I don't know about this. This is kind of weird. Like, tell me more about it, because I'm kind of new to this. Well, I've got to tell you, my dear friends, it is really easy. For example, you can click on that Indiegogo link. You don't even have to create a profile. You can actually just sign in through Facebook. It's that easy. Really user-friendly. And not only that, you might be wondering, like, well, yeah, but why do you need to raise funds? Well, here's just an example. The venue cost is the far right side of the pie graph. The venue does actually cost a lot of money. And so they don't give it away for free. That's something that we have to crowdfund for. And this is a big risk, but we are confident we have met all of our crowdfund goals in the past. And you might be wondering, you're like, James, I don't know. Have you had successful crowdfunds in the past? We have. Here's an example of one a year ago. We met our goal for that one. And we, of course, also had this one. If you guys don't remember this, this was a juicy debate in the early part of the summer with Matt Dillahunty and Kenny Rhodes. We met our goal for that. So we are determined we can make this crowdfund goal help us make this goal as we're 100% pumped 
for this conference. And like I said, you'll get to watch all the debates live, which is something that only people who throw into the crowdfund or become a member or Patreon supporter of Modern Day Debate are able to do. We're absolutely thrilled for it. So join us as we fulfill the vision of providing a level playing field for everybody to make their case on a neutral platform as we strive to get people from all walks of life engaging with one another. So I want to say, you guys, seriously, I love you. Thanks for your support. Thanks for your last minute super chat from Contrarian420. We really do appreciate it. Sorry that I think that super chat came in just a moment too late before I was able to uh, ask the question to Stuart before he wrapped up. But I do want to say, my friends, I've got to run because, like I said, I'm going to get kicked out of the library in a second. We are going to be back on Thursday for another Juicy Debate. So if you haven't already hit that subscribe button as we are excited about the future, we are excited about this epic conference coming up, Modern Day Debate Con. It is going to be a massive conference. We are determined and absolutely pumped up for DebateCon. You guys, I love you. Thanks for making this channel awesome. Seriously, you make this fun. You make it a blast. And we're excited about the future as we fulfill the vision of providing a neutral platform for everybody to make their case on a level playing field where we get people from all walks of life engaging with each other. So thanks, everybody. I love you guys. Seriously, we're excited about the future and fulfilling this vision together. Join us as we have big things in store for the future. And I will see you next time, guys. I wish I could talk longer, but like I said, I've got to go. They're closing at the library, and I'm excited to talk to you more like we normally do at the end of streams. I just have to go in this particular case. This is my last night at the library. So thanks, everybody. I love you guys. I'll see you next time. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.